This is Overture, the Prelude Podcast. Welcome to the Prelude Podcast. My name is Chris Willis, and I'm a principal security researcher here at Prelude. Hi, I'm Alex Manners. I'm a principal security engineer at Prelude. So joining us today, we have Bart. Bart's a new security engineer here at Prelude. You'll likely hear more frequently his voice on the podcast. So Bart, you want to give us an intro? Yeah, um, I go by Bart uh, and pretty much any other name that can fit in there. Uh, my full name is Samuel Bartholomew. Um, before this, I was working with a cyber protection team for the military and uh, got into contact with Alex and now I work here. First, we're going to start off with a question to, to you, Bart. Um, what security technology or concept outside of currently what you're doing do you want to see get better next year? One of the security concepts that I don't think we have enough of data on or anything yet is uh, Starlink. Like one of the things, right? Like if you actually do, how they're going to deal with, you know, having a global network like that and, um, whether or not it's going to change some of the way the attacks happen and, you know, trying to pin down where something came from and stuff like that. Just, I think in the next few years with them and Amazon doing their things that, uh, probably going to see some very weird, uh, concepts of security that are going to have to be put in place for those. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize like, there's a lot of bandwidth for the constellation um, uh, internet capability stuff that uh, that uh, you know SpaceX and and Amazon are doing, uh, but a lot of that is actually kept from the government. So the government takes a lot of that bandwidth, and so we only you know from a standard of the standard person, we only get a little bit of that bandwidth. Um, the government gets quite a bit of it. I, for one, am looking forward to the CSI episodes where they're saying the cyber attacks are coming from everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they're using the satellites. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting too to to um, see how uh, upgrades are done on those constellations um, because uh, currently SpaceX, because they were trying to get it out and get it get it to work somewhat. Uh, they left a lot of the things that they promised out. So like uh, the laser capabilities are are not there, but they're now putting the laser capabilities in. And so it will be interesting to see how they will integrate new capabilities into the existing models that are in the uh, in space currently. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because uh, I, I also am a huge fan of space in general, and I like to research a lot of this stuff. Is one of the the side effects of all these satellites going up is it's making terrestrial astronomy incredibly difficult. You have very bright satellites, large fleets of very bright satellites in low Earth orbit that are making it difficult for light to get through the atmosphere down to our receivers on on Earth. And I, I don't even know like the latest or state of the latest in that, but it's kind of those side effects that you don't necessarily think about when you're you're trying to put fleets of satellites into space. But what what else do we not know that it could be impacting beyond just astronomy, right? And obviously, like the aforementioned bandwidth that is available, do, what are the impacts of that outside of just 
what we cage in just infosec and IT? I think um, China had released some stuff that they had almost uh, came into contact with the satellites or something, some of their their stuff. Uh, and yeah, it was just funny because like, um, like you said, I, I remember, I think right when they first launched the first stack, I think they got a petition signed by a bunch of astronomers and stuff that um, said that they, uh, that they, um, it was going to cause issues with their obser- observing of the stars. So yeah, and then also, what what what's it called? The other one that I was trying to think of, and I, as I rambled earlier, there was there's a term for when there's a like a cataclysmic chain of objects in space where if you get a certain amount of debris spreading out, it'll cause a chain reaction of debris that will basically destroy everything in low Earth orbit and make make it impossible to launch vehicles off Earth into space because you'll just get hit by debris and explode. So what what is the threshold for that? And how how is the U.S. military? How is like Space Force, right? How are they mitigating that? How are we going to address that as more companies are starting to put more and more fleets of satellites into space? No, I, I'm more interested in the physical side. Yeah, I know that they're looking at like the uh, having uh, cleanup satellites that would go into low Earth orbit and kind of clean up some of the small debris. But I think that's like an ongoing effort. <laughs> It'll end up being something like cleaning up the ocean. It just takes forever. Ah, it's called the Kessler syndrome, the Kessler effect. So if you have enough objects in low Earth orbit, the collision rate goes up and that could cause a cascade in which each collision generates more space debris, increasing the likelihood of further collisions. So as we're shoving more and more into low Earth orbit, the potential for that to happen also goes up. And I wonder, somebody's probably done the math, and I bet if we Googled it, we could see what the math looks like, but super curious on that. Yeah, especially with those constellations being so close. Mm -hmm. You hit one, and then you probably get... (laughs) several others <laughs> yeah, it's like uh what what's the speed is 15 15 000 miles an hour what's the speed to be in orbit however many tens of thousands of miles an hour like shotgun debris <laughs> <laughs> well so today we're going to be talking about um breaking into the security field and um so I, I think this is going to be an awesome topic just to sort of get all of our perspectives on how we've entered the security field. And uh, I think, you know, we've all kind of gone different paths. Pretty much everybody will go down a different path. But it's good to hear what what paths people have gone down and and things that you share, things that are different. And then we'll also talk a little bit about of what we have done differently uh, now that we've kind of gone through the space and sort of know the lay of the land, uh, what we have done differently based on what we know now. Um, so Bart, you want to go first and kind of talk about your, uh, breaking into the security field? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I was one of the pretty much military transition people. I always did computer stuff before I got in, but it wasn't really at the, um, like when I, when I joined the military, that's when I became like a system administrator before that I was strictly like I'd fix computers and stuff. Just, uh, yeah. So like getting in, I, let's see, 2011. Yeah. So 2011. Wow. That's a long time. Um, I joined and yeah, I, I got put as this, as a system 
systems administrator, which is funny. Um, it actually goes into how I know Alex. Uh, he used to run my shop. So um, yeah, it, it go full circle. It's it's pretty crazy to see that it's what ten years almost. Well, I know. I guess you were there at like twenty thirteen or so. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like from there, you know, that got me into the, you know, just the way that servers interact and then clients and all of that. And then I retrained into cyber warfare, um, which I have to say, like out of all the place, all the military branches that I've worked with, which I've I've worked with quite a few, um, the air force really has a unique way of doing their cyber warfare stuff. Um, just the, the training that you go to and everything, it seems, uh, seems to do a really good job at giving you this like very wide, but baseline view of it. Like you go through law, you go through, you know, offensive, defensive, like all the, all the separate ones, um, not necessarily deep, like super deep or anything, but enough to where it kind of gets you in the right place to uh, continue building on it. We actually had a conversation about that in a prior podcast, and I, I brought up exactly what you're describing. The Air Force seems to have a good way of taking Joe Schmo, Jane Smith, off the street and at least getting them to a point where they could know nothing about computers but be pretty much functional as as, as an operator at the end of their their training pr- pipeline. And I'm, I'm curious what your perspective on that is because that's perspective I certainly have had. I think that has a lot to do with the type of person as well. Um, right. Cause like, I guess that, that, that's kind of the difference is like, it seems like, at least for me, like when I, when I look at like security people is most of them always had a background prior to that. Like they, like you, it's not normal that you like meet somebody and they're like, yeah, I just got out of college and I'm doing security. Like, like it's, they always have this, like, this led me to security type thing. Um, and the Air Force picked up on that, I think. And that's why, like, when they started up the cyber warfare field, they would only take people that had already had system administration background or uh, network transport, stuff like that. Hmm. Um, and they they noticed that, right? Because they there's a lot of stuff in security that you could probably get lost on, I think, if you didn't have at least some background. Um, but it it's one of those things it's like, it's going to take a lot of our education system and everything to like, there needs to be more computer stuff in like high school. There needs to be more computer stuff in middle school, even like it's crazy, but um, with the way the world's going in technology. Yeah. So, so for the trend, cause it's, is it still one before that's the air force AFSC? So when you did your one before transition, cause I, yeah. So Bart and I worked together in the air force back in 2014 is actually when it was, uh, in Tucson, Arizona. So when you did your transition to one before, were they only accepting one before applicants that came from 3D, which is yep. for, for listeners, three Delta is uh, basically all of this, the cyber tech, cyber technologies. Think of it as your like IT infrastructure, system administrator, network administrator type positions. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, right. Like when I first, actually, I want to say that they still are, only taking it. Um, no, there was like talk, I think back in 2017, 20, yeah, around, right around 2017 about taking pipeline, like brand new from like basic. But yeah, when I went through, I had not only did you three Delta was a requirement. You had to, you had to have a cyber career, 
you also had to take um, the IQPT or something like that. I think it's a, like a uh, intelligence test of some sort. Um, and then you also had to do a person to person interview with the chief master sergeant of the career field. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. After all that, that's when they accepted you when I went through. Um, but yeah, that, that like I know they were talking about changing it in 2017, but there was a lot of pushback um, regarding like if people would be lost or whatever, if they just straight out boot camp um, took them into cyber warfare. Huh, I wonder if they are accepting like science, like if you go to MEPS or whatever, and you're basically saying I'm going straight to one before. I wonder if they offer that or if they offer contingency will make you one before if you train for three delta and you're successful we'll just immediately shove you into the one before pipeline that's what they were talking about actually was to do like some sort of uh you do go through three delta just so that they don't like lose somebody from the one before career field right away mm -hmm. and then if you're like top five top ten in your class or something then you would get um the ability to move into the one before but i don't know if that ever took off either mm. but back to like, like the military definitely gives you that like on the job training, I guess. Right. Compared to like, that's always kind of the difference, I guess, between academic and military. When I viewed it was like, um, they're all about just putting you on and <laughs> you either fail, you either fail hard or you, you, you kind of succeed. So um, it, it's really a, it's good for, I think, certain people, um, the military way of doing things. So yeah. is it different, uh, going uh, like, so if you're wanting to choose your career path, is it different if you're doing enlisted to, to officer where like officer, you pretty much just say, I want to do cyber. They're probably going to have a seat for you. Uh, but if you went into enlisted, you kind of have to go through the, the extra paces. So when I was in, when I retrained, um, I was actually up with a bunch of officers. That's what's funny is like my first, the first place I went, I think there was more officers than there was enlisted where I, where I ended up at, um, over in Maryland. And, um, I think they're one alpha, I want to say is what the, the career field for them is. There's for like cyber a, officers. Yeah. It's, it's like 17 one, Sierra, 17 Delta and 17 Sierra. One's offense, one's defense, I think, or something like so that. So what, so, so to give you a quick background, it used to be every cyber warfare was 33 S. So you have numbers. These numbers were saying people are like, what the hell does this mean? 33, you have one like 10 X, 20 X, 30 X. So a 33 is basically support. Anything that starts with the number one is quote operations, right? So your pilots are going to be like, I think they're 13s or I, I don't know what the number is. And then you'll have like so information operations operators, and those will be 14 Foxtrots or something. Then you have cyber warfare. So they, when they did the cyber warfare transition, they made basically all 33 S's overnight. They were like, you're now all operations people. You're now 17 deltas, which obviously makes, didn't work. So now they, they did a couple different variations and they've kind of settled on, you have IT support infrastructure type people. And I think they're just kind of like core 17 Delta. And then you can have offensive or defensive oriented people. And those fall into Sierra 17 Sierra. But I think we would need to get somebody to, who really is still in to actually tell us the definitive way it is. But that's, that's the general breakdown. I think the latest of where we are. 
to answer your question, Chris, though, for for air like Air Force officers, it's actually very different from the enlisted personnel. So your enlisted personnel, as uh, Bart was describing, you you'd come in as like a cyber transport or IT admin, yeah. sysadmin, right? And then you transition to cyber warfare. When you're a brand new second lieutenant coming in as a 17 Delta, you're actually put into the same training pipeline that the one Bravo 4 cyber warfare enlisted personnel are put into. So you get the cyber warfare training no matter what job you're going to in the Air Force as a cyber officer. Okay. And then if you're going to a offensive defensive unit, you'll get additional training on top of that. But I think what Bart alludes to and where the Air Force and military really gets the bang for the buck is the OJT on-job training. And there's a whole formal way that OJT is handled. Actually, Bart, could you talk a little bit about that from your experiences? Like what what OJT entails in the military? Yeah, so uh, as funny as that is, I I actually sat as a unit training manager for almost a year. (laughs) So um, yeah, uh, they have, you know... It kind of comes down from um, the the career field leads. They kind of come through and they they get consensus through the the entire career field, and they say, you know, what are these things that somebody should know? Um, and then there's different. They rate them on different scales of like how knowledgeable you need to be. Um, and then essentially, your first line supervisor, so whoever um, is rating on you, they will um, essentially make sure that you meet the proper um, efficiency or, um, technical level for each one of those. Um, and then you have certain people inside each shop that maybe just does the training. It's like train the trainer or something like, like you have to go through so that you can actually certify and sign people off. Um, once again, this is like from what I know of like when I was in, which I got out in 2017. So, I mean, things could have changed, but that's kind of how it was, um, where like, there are certain ones that like you actually had to show that you could do. And then there was other ones that were like just knowledge based, like, Hey, what, what would you do in this situation or what's the proper way of doing this? Um, but they have this whole list and it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot <laughs> yeah, depending on, um, what rank you are, things like that. Like as your rank goes up, you'll, you'll get extra ones and thing. Yeah. And that's just for the basics, right? Because you're not even talking about like weapon system qualification training that goes on top of that as well. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and that's the other thing, right? Is like the the mili- the other thing that the military I think offers a lot of people is that um, there's always like an option. Granted, if you're willing and you put the work in for it, I should say they they normally always have a way to where you can finagle yourself into where you want to be. Um, like after I went through a lot of people, you know, the, the next thing was to go through a certain class that would allow you to become an operator or like a on keyboard operator. And, um, th- that's a completely separate, right? Like extra that you have to go through. And I mean, the, the fail rate on that, I think is like somewhere is like, I think it was like 50% actually. It was pretty crazy, um, for that one. Uh, I was more of the developer type person I wanted to go through and do tool development, things like that, which is why I'm working over here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's interesting. It, it, it sounds like, I mean, obviously I'm speaking from similar experiences and the Air Force, I think, I think the big difference that 
uh, well, I guess this is a good transition point over to Chris is the Air Force and like military in general. If you want to go become a SME in something, there's almost certainly a pipeline, a training pipeline that exists to get to that point. And so like, there are some training pipelines like pilot training, right? That's a super long training pipeline. It's multiple years. There are some cyber training programs that are also six months, two years. So you could find those types of training programs available to you inside the military. And we'll kind of loop back around to this at the end, I think. But that's one of the big differentiators in my mind between the military right now and how it's approaching cyber training and getting people spun up and how academia is approaching it. And Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about your, your, your kind of trajectory to where, where you are now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I had the academic approach. Um, definitely I wasn't in the military. Um, so, um, I didn't take that path. Um, so I kind of got lucky because I just so happened to choose a school that had a really great cyber club. We didn't have a good cyber program. In fact, the majority of computer science professors at my university did not support anybody from our cyber program or our cyber club. And it was just that there was a professor there, uh, Jamie Rasmussen, who said we like he went to DEF CON. He's like, I want to create a DEF CON CTF team. And the next year they were in DEF CON CTF. <laughs> wow. Um, and that was like the people from legit BS who ran DEF CON CTF. That was the, that those people. <laughs> um, and so um, they're incredibly talented. They're doing amazing things now. But when I was a student, like I was lucky enough to just be a part of that club. Um, we were looking for things to do as a freshman and um, I didn't really understand, like, when you go into academia, you're, like, in your, like, choosing your, your, your path in college, like, first I wanted to do political science. I wanted to go be a lawyer. And then I dropped that pretty quickly. <laughs> and then went to do computer science. Um, and, like, you don't really understand that you can't just go to class every day and expect to get anything out of it. Um, and I was lucky enough to, like, I was bored. And I wanted to find other things to do. And so I looked at clubs and saw the security club and said, hey, that sounds interesting. I'll go do that. Um, and then some other friends ended up joining and doing that as well. And uh, that became like a really awesome thing because a lot of the alumni were still really active. Um, our club is is super active from, from an alumni standpoint. And so they always contribute back. And we would just learn reverse engineering and and crypto and uh, web security and kind of learned on our own. Um, so and then we would just go back and teach that on Fridays. Um, we always had fr like meetings on Fridays at five, so you had to be dedicated to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we go go uh, go to the German restaurant and get schnitzel and and, and drinks later, <laughs> and that was our thing. Um, and so like, and then we played CTFs on the weekends. Um, and so, um, like I said, our, like until I was president of that club and then we also had Florida center for cybersecurity that came into our university. So university of South Florida for people that don't know. Uh, so when 
the state started to buy in and knew that cybersecurity was going to be a big thing and trying to get the trying to get more research into the state of Florida for cybersecurity that's when there was sort of a transition of uh university professors caring to actually promote and to do things with cybersecurity before that it really just like there was i mean there was definitely professors that were just outright like not a fan of wcsc at all um and that kind of hurt our club um so when we were competing at defcon and we had the capabilities to compete at defcon that's when shellfish was also starting uh and giovanni vigna and and those guys that's when ppp was starting uh and carnegie mellon um and so we were in the groundbreaking time to do that the difference was is that those schools embrace those clubs and really made them a thing. Um, and then research was then tied around that. And that's the really big thing with, with uh, cybersecurity and academia today is like, you really got to have a robust research program that then brings more talented people into your university. And so that's one of the things you really got to look at when you're looking to get into um, a program, you know you want to do cyber, like look at their research, look at the professors that are there, and then you can kind of make a good estimation or guess, like, is this a school I want to go to? Um, and then look at the clubs because you're still going to need that. There's a lot of... So we learned a lot of offensive capabilities uh, and offensive stuff. We really didn't focus on defense. Like we did CCDC um, and Hack UCF, which was just down I four. Like they won, pretty, they won every year. I was I was at uh, USF. Um, they they had a program that was good for them to do that. Like they had IT, their IT program was in was in person, and our IT program wasn't in person. So we had a lot of computer science people and. So we just cared a lot more about like the reverse engineering side and and binaries and didn't necessarily think about like Active Directory and how you would set that up and the defensive uh, nature of that. And so we ended up usually doing better in CTS. They ended up doing better in CCDC. But the difference was is that, <laughs> and this goes into the whole university politics thing, but CCDC is better for clubs and better for the university because it promotes the university where CTFs don't promote universities. They tend to promote the club. So when I go to sign up for, if I'm, you know, WCSC and I sign up for CTF, I'm WCSC. I'm not WCSC USF. And USF doesn't get any recognition for that. So they never cared. They, they still don't care about CTFs. If you ask them, like, if, if White Hatters or, or you know, this could go for any university. Um, most universities don't see a benefit of somebody qualifying for DEF CON CTF, but they'll see huge benefits when you qualify for something like, you know, nationals for CCDC because nationals for CCDC, their whole thing is promoting the university first. And so there's that whole university politics thing that goes around with that. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of times, like, some of the, the universities that are really, really good at CTFs are less known. Um, like 
Purdue does really well in CTS. Georgia Tech does uh, like C, uh, CTS really well. USF has really been uh, big into the CTS for a long time. Uh, uh, UCSB, so University of Santa, uh, Santa Barbara, like they do extremely well. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, you don't necessarily see them as cybersecurity universities, but then when you look at the CTF build, like that's a completely different, uh, different like ball game, and so um, those. The people coming out of those clubs are just extremely well versed and and capable uh, when they go into the field. Um, and so that's interesting. Why wouldn't I would think as a college administration staff having a club that is part of that's associated with my university, even if it's not explicitly tied together, winning competitions, very large competitions would be a positive thing and I would want to support that. And I'm you would very think. confused why that. Um, <laughs> so it, it has a lot to do with, they don't know how to market that. Um, and also too, they, they don't see any benefit because when somebody goes to university and they say, I want to sponsor what we found from white adders was that they want to sponsor white adders. They want to sponsor mm -hmm. WCSE. They don't want to sponsor USF, <laughs> sure, <laughs> and because they don't want their money to be fun, you know, funneled somewhere else, and uh, the university doesn't want that. So, from a standpoint of of like, and they they want to get their name out there. That's the other part. So the way like Santa Barbara does it is really smart. So what they do is is Giovanni basically you know has this lab uh, that they they do all their research out of. And so they sponsor like University of California, Santa Barbara, like they sponsor on the research side. They say that we're doing this amazing research. So that's where they get their their recognition mm -hmm. where shellfish gets its recognition just by being selfish. And they just happen <laughs> to be a part of the same group. Right. Uh, if you're a part of selfish, you're probably part of that lab. Um, yeah. So that's how they kind of get their recognition. And that's how they get money where like. We never got any money from the like University of South Florida for the longest time because yeah. they just didn't want to support it because they didn't see any reason to. So yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of dual heading, right? You're you're a researcher by day, CTF by night, and yeah. and that that makes sense. And I'm I, I'm just kind of taken aback that it seems like there's a lot of opportunity there for a lot of universities, and it's unseized opportunity. Unrealized yep. opportunity. I mean, but even I, if you I, look again, at Carnegie I don't know Mellon, any academia. <laughs> yeah, it also goes down to like professors as well. Like, you have to have a professor there that's willing, that's able. You know, so so Jeremy Jeremy was a great per, you know person to be the first person to start uh, to be a part of White Hatters and start White Hatters. Um, but he was an instructor, right? And so he couldn't bring in the research because he couldn't hold research. And so that's one of the things too, is like, you have to have a professor who can hold research that, that is basically the club. Um, because that's how you see a lot of these, um, some of the better clubs, uh, uh, prevail. So like Carnegie Mellon, they had Don Song and then before Don Song they had, or after Don Song, they had, um, uh, David Brumley. And so those two professors really brought in that research and then basically facilitated the club. 
uh, hmm. PPP. And you just had really good people at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the same goes for like UCSB. So UCSB, like they they had a professor that was so Giovanni Vigna, who kind of cultivated this this club and then got to hold the research and kind of brought that together. And now you see that with like Arizona State and Yon uh, and Fish, like they took their stuff that they knew from from UCSB and brought it to Arizona State. Um, if you're looking today, like to go into to an academic, like into like doing offensive cyber uh, and and defensive cyber, like Arizona State is one of the best places you could go, um, just because the professors that are there. Um, same goes for um, like uh, Purdue. Uh, there was a professor there that kind of cultivated that that uh, group, and then now there's a really good uh, cyber CTF team, and they've just been kind of they're they've been more recent, uh, sort of like Arizona. Um, so. You have a lot of intimate knowledge, and this is obviously brand new information to me. Like, I guess I have two questions here. One. It's how do we expect people to find out this kind of stuff? And then two, where can we find these types of answers? And how do, I guess three, how do we ask the right questions to find these types of places in, in an academic environment? That's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really hard, right? Like if you know the people in the field, then that's one thing. Like that's how I knew, like, I, well, I was at White Hatters. I was a president of White Hatters, and I was like, "Well, how does all these other teams do it?" And sort of like broke up all the pieces and just kind of figured it out. Um, and that's the other thing that's kind of hard about academia, right? Like, like I said, like I came in thinking I was going to be, uh, you know, I was going to be a lawyer, <laughs> and then I changed um, to do more of what I what I wanted to do as a passion, which was computer science. And so I just, like I said, got lucky. Um, if you go in knowing that you want to do cyber or cybersecurity or, or, or computer science, and then you have a little bit more options. And if you're already in sort of the cyber realm and you're already doing CTF, so like, you know, uh, uh, NYU Poly does uh, Seesaw. And they cater to a CTF that's just for uh, high school students. And if you're a part of that, then you're already in that little bit of a, like that space. And you can sort of see like who qualifies for for uh, Seesaw in the U.S. and look to see which teams are which and try to go for those places. Um, but even then, you may not know like of... USF, or you might not know of of Hack UCF, um, you might not know of um, Purdue or Arizona State. Um, Arizona State now sort of plays. They they when they originally started, they played under a different team, and now they're part of I think Shellfish. So makes it a little bit more confusing too. <laughs> so I guess by way of asking more questions here. Is there is there a list uh, that somebody can refer to to get these types of answers? Does that exist? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's CTF time. So if you wanted to like, if you, if you knew like, so th that's one of the other bigger parts. Like I keep talking about CTFs, but r in reality, 
the thing about academia today is that um, it doesn't matter what school you go to. Um, it matters, like, it sort of still goes back to that on-the-job training, but instead of doing it on the job, you, just, you have CTS. And <laughs> we use CTS as a way to get ready for the security field. Whereas if you just took your classes, like even for cybersecurity programs, they're not good enough. And in, in many cases, like the professors have not done, have not gone into the field to do these things. They went from doing their research and going directly to being a professor. And they don't have that, that knowledge. Um, and so you need, you need the CTS in order to basically be ready to, to go into the industry. Um, so CTFs yeah. are really important. I'm just through. thinking, based off what everything you just described, maybe we can throw up a like a Prelude Org Overture repo and just like list out these schools and clubs for people so they yeah. can have a resource they can at least refer to if they're interested in, for any high schoolers that are listening, they're looking for schools where they can meet like-minded people just having that reference point without having to know already know those people yeah, might be yeah. helpful. So the the other thing I'd say is uh, regarding that as well is um because when I was in Maryland I I was still in the Air Force but uh, I did Cyber Patriot which was for the high schools right and that was one of those things that he was talking about I mean granted that one's more like not really offensive it's kind of like a defensive as well Cyber Patriot basically gets you ready for CCDC yeah and I mean I, I definitely see that you can see the school systems like trying to kind of you know breed that like mentality of like hey um, I think you mentioned it well is like you you want to be part of the community right like that like how do you get how do you become part of the cybersecurity community and these clubs and stuff is a very uh, I think good and I mean useful way right like like you're you're helping your program as well. Like if you're in the college, right. And you're doing this, you're also going to help your grades while you're going through cybersecurity or while you're going through a CS degree or something, because you're just learning that. Um, but it, yeah, like I'd say for any high schoolers and stuff, you should definitely check for um, cyber Patriot in your school. Um, and it, that's a good intro. Um, Cause you'll get people that are like either military teaching, being the mentor on it. Right. And, um, but I've met some really bright. It's funny because there's this always there's there's always these like one or two kids that you're like, like, dude, you just ran you just ran Nmap across like the entire thing, and like they weren't even supposed to be running Nmap. <laughs> you're like, but but you, I, I I'll keep my eye on you because later on I bet you're going to be one of these guys that are you know like that you hear about in the news where you're like, wow, like you know where George Hots come from and stuff like that. It's like they're just curious, right? And you're building up on that. Yeah. I mean, a shameless plug too. like if, you know, if you're a professional in the field and you want to do something good for the community, there is so many high schools that really need people to stand up and be like the cyber patriot mentor. Um, I always see like um, lots of high schools that want to get into that, but just don't have they don't have the coursework and then they sort of create clubs into themselves. Right. Um, thinking like. The, the best high school you could go to to do cyber, I think, right now is 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 TJ, so Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> um, they they do C64 Seabread. <laughs> well, that team was a part of that. And then they kind of moved on. Um, but, like, the 
uh, Cyber Patriot. Like there's there's tons of uni- uh, tons of high schools that want to do that. They just don't have the mentors. And if you uh, if you're looking to do some uh, do some help within the community, that is definitely something to uh, look into. Yeah. Which I mean, I think that kind of touches on the the next thing that like we're a hobbyist kind of like are like how do you like, that area like yeah, you're Alex, just you want to you want to talk about like sort of your uh, your background into uh, how you got into cyber yeah so I actually did I did start in high school um, and I I can draw a line directly to specifically two teachers and two classes that I I had and I will call them out her Colleen Kelly and Kyle Schmidt were two of my high school teachers and. One of them taught, uh, Colleen taught me uh, computer science. So I did computer science in high school, which was pretty rare back when I was in high school. I mean, not super rare, but it was not offered in a lot of high schools. And then Kyle Schmidt offered this course that like notionally was supposed to teach you how to get a, I think it was your like um, IT fundamentals, your uh, CompTIA IT basic certification. Uh, but what actually happened in that class was we were starting to have all of those security mechanisms for classes where they could like remotely monitor com- your computer. We started getting all that stuff. And during that class, we started trying to figure out how to turn off all that stuff. Uh, and, and in addition to that, like, you know, just finding all of the network shares that they were storing all their stuff on and just doing all that kind of stuff. And it was an environment where we were I wouldn't say told by the administration we were allowed to do these things, but we were like allowed to experiment. And in in that one class, we had basically all of the old hardware that was either going to get put away or tossed was all brought into a room. So we had old switches, old routers. We had old printers where the interface was broken and we had no way to get into it. So we had to figure out how to like remotely access the system. And that was like foundational for me in terms of my everything I did after that. Um, so I, that was what I would say is like my break in was just having, having somebody facilitate that creativity that we're talking about in a f- sort of formal fashion. And then after that, I kind of had a more combination, honestly, of the, the two of your backgrounds. So I did, I went to college and I actually did a, it's called engineering management with systems analysis, but it was like a half entrepreneurship degree and a half computer science uh, process engineering degree. And then I went into cyber warfare training at the Air Force after that. So I kind of did three different routes of breaking into training and each of them taught me different things. And what I would say is what I learned from all of that is each of them teaches you, each of those ways taught me something different that I hadn't learned in the other way that I developed that skill set. So that, that's kind of how I got my start. And, and a lot of it was just boils down, or a lot of it was just the creativity and boiled down to being given an opportunity to just kind of mess around with stuff. Yeah. And I think that plays a big part on like, um, why I like to see the clubs and not just clubs, but like classes, like you said, that give you that leeway and stuff. Cause I mean, we also, I, I took, I think one programming class when I was in high school. Um, and the teacher was really cool. Like, I guess so the only way you can explain it right, is like really cool. Like it was in essence, it was like, Hey, these are your semester projects. Do these. Once you do that, you can mess around on the computer any way you want. Um, and 
I think that's really what breeds like the, the good security people is the people that do it because not because they have to, because, you know, they're going to that class and like, that's the only reason they're doing it, but because they want to, right? Like you want to learn, you, you, you're almost intrigued by it. Um, and, and I think like anybody who has that mindset and that's the thing is like, Pete, I would rather take somebody who has a mindset for wanting to learn and wanting to like figure out why something does something like even in any engineering by mindset almost and take that over, you know, somebody who is just doing computers because they want, because like it's the money or something, right. Sure. Something like that. Um, and those are the people I think you see really, uh, thrive in security because it, it is, it's almost like a game, right? Like you're trying to, how do I get around this? How do I, how do I beat this? How do I, how can I detect somebody trying to do that? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Puzzle solvers. Yeah. And right. Then, yeah. Then puzzle creators. And then also you have this like lazy mentality, which is not the word. Like it's not the best word to, to use in this, in that stance, but it's like, you want to really like a really great hacker is somebody who's lazy because they can just like figure it out and they'll find some really odd path that just doesn't go the normal path and sort of breaks all rules. And so you have something that does something in maybe one or two steps instead of like six or seven steps. So it's that that lazy mentality, which is not really late. It's not really lazy. It's just like they try to find something to do something much easier. <laughs> well, and that's what's funny, right? Is that example is always funny because it's like, yeah, the best programmers are lazy people because they're just like, you know, like, how can I actually take like I'll spend three hours doing this, even though it only takes me five minutes. But the way I look at it is like, those are five minutes that I'm doing constantly. Maybe like I have to do it every like day when I wake up or something. It's like, well, I'll invest the three hours into it just to be able to do this. Yeah. And yeah, like it's, it's funny that you bring that up. Cause like, yeah, it's, it's. So I, I, I also, there's one person not on this call who would give an, another good perspective, but I can, I'll just briefly summarize it. Our CTO, I, I, he didn't have a computer until he was 18. So he never, he didn't have a computer at all until he was 18. He was a journalism major in college. And now he is, he's an incredibly successful developer and security engineer. And he used a CTO of a cybersecurity company. So there's like, I guess the important thing is it really boils down to finding something you're interested in and, and pursuing that. I know it's very cliched to say, but it's the truth, right? Like, If you were to remove everything that all of us described, if you were to remove the word cyber and security from that kind like from the context and you were to drop in any other career field or industry, it's going to be the same kind of conversation because it's foundational, right? It's I'm doing this because I'm super interested in learning about it and I want to develop this skill set. And like that tends to be a path to success for people irrespective of industry, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I always try to tell people that as well as like, Hey, if you're getting into security for the money, you're probably not going to like it. Cause if you're doing it for the money only, and you're going to, you're going to be miserable every day sitting there, you know, doing something you don't want to do. And I mean, if you look at like su- successful people, like even like chefs or something, it's funny, but like, if you look at like a chef, that's like super successful and everything, like you can tell their passion to do what they do. Like they love it. And same with like weldings, like welders. Like I s- see some guys that like just you know, upload videos of them welding stuff. And then you look and they make like, you know, two, $300,000 a year doing welding for specific um, industries. And you're just like, what, like it, it is, it's all about, you know, yeah. passion, yeah. I think is what it comes down to is. 
uh, my younger brother is a air- aircraft mechanic certified A&P and he loves what he does and he's phenomenal at it. I have no idea what he's doing and I frankly have no interest. Like I get into an airplane and I want it to go up and come down and I want to get there in one piece, right? But he he can tell you everything about an aircraft. He can tell you scary things about aircraft that I didn't know that now I'm a little more frightened to, to fly truthfully, but he loves it, right? It's his passion and it's what he's interested in. And I think actually now that I'm kind of on that topic, that's one of the big differences, I think. And we've talked about this in past podcasts is if, if you say, I want to become an aircraft mechanic, there's actually a training program you can go to that will take you from knowing nothing to being certified to go work on an airplane. Like you get two certifications. Those two certifications allow you to do airframe and propulsion, and then you can go work on an aircraft and you're certified to repair aircraft and certify aircraft to fly. Like that pipeline is very clear and explicit. And as we talked about in uh, the podcast with Spencer and Lewis, that there's no parallel in cybersecurity right now. And you've just heard three completely different trajectories for people getting into a career field. And they're all completely different. And the fourth David's very different from the three of ours. Uh, that that kind of illuminates the the core problem here, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. like ultimately, how do you break into the? I think anybody who's saying here's how you break into the career field and tells you this is the way to do it, they're probably wrong because <laughs> there really <laughs> isn't a good way to break into the career field. Unfortunately, I don't know. That's just my perspective. That's an Alex perspective. <laughs> it's also being pre-exposed to things too. Like so, like. You know, I was pre-exposed to doing binary stuff and I just so happened to like binary stuff. <laughs> but you could also be exposed to cybersecurity from the business side and that's what you enjoy doing. Um, yeah. And so there's there's such a huge variation of cybersecurity. And I think that that's some of the reason why, um, like, you know, academia, they don't know what to do with that, right? Because the engineering departments don't like to play nice with the business departments. And so you don't get that. <laughs> you either choose engineering or you choose business. <laughs> um, and they've they've kind of started to work together with that and try to build something that you can have multi like it's the understanding of cybersecurity being multidisciplinary, right? But um that's still a problem, right? Where like it, you almost have to I think that's where some people get into this notion where they say you need to go do IT before you go and do cyber right or you need to go and do development before you go do cyber I think a lot of that has to do with the fact of how they were predisposed to it they were exposed to it by doing you know software development and then just happened to be like I want to go write tools for cyber stuff uh, because that's kind of what I was doing um, and that's not really needed. You just kind of need to know where you want to go. And, yeah. uh, that's, that's the hard part with cyber is so multidisciplinary that you can, there's so many way paths and, and ways forward. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to shout out my alma mater actually to your point about engineering and business schools, not wanting to work well. So my school, Miami university in Ohio, not the one in Florida, <laughs> Miami university, Ohio, uh, my degree was actually literally 50% in the engineering department and 50% out of their business school. So you have the farmer school business, which is very well known, very well respected. 
And then you have the the School of Engineering, which is also well-known, well-respected. And they were able to build that engineering management program so that you're taking uh, like all of your engineering classes up to 400 level, but you're also taking business classes all the way up to the 400 level. And it gives you, it gave me in particular a very well-rounded experience. And I still got a BSE. So I still have a a bachelor's of science in engineering out of that degree, but I still got to do business stuff, which I do find interesting. Yeah. And I was going to say like, it's funny, right? Like a lot of people think that getting into the security fields like hard, but I think when you look at it and you take a step back right now and you see all of the different ways, it's probably actually one of the easiest fields to get into, right? Because you can get in via all of these other ways. And really the only thing I think it comes down to is like, like we said, like, that passion to want to do it. Right. And that's the thing is like, I, I think anybody who has the, the, the want to get into cyber and they put the time into it, they put, you know, the, the sweat and all of the nights of staying up, thinking about a question and all of that into it, you could be, you can get into it and you can be successful in it. Yeah. So I think I think really what we should do as a result of this is aggregate together all of our stuff onto a readme and we'll, we'll put up a, a GitHub repository with just the resources that that we've found successful in our past and we'll keep it definitely we want to keep it what we have found successful because I, I'm going to loop back to my original point. I don't want people to think we're saying this is the way to get into the industry because I think that's that nobody has that answer. <laughs> Um, that being said, it's a good transition. So what would any of you have done differently, um, f- given what you know now, given all of this experience that you've accrued over the years? <laughs> I have a, maybe a little bit of a controversial one <laughs> that I would do oh. differently. Oh, yeah? Let's hear it. Um, so I think that there... So I went from doing stuff in academia and doing stuff like I had a really like my first job was kind of strange in that I basically like did management of cybersecurity research for the entire state of Florida and I was a master's student (laughs) (laughs) and so I was telling you know professors and PhDs that you know giving critiques on their research probably not the the uh I mean, I was I was good at what I was doing, but it, like it was difficult on both sides, right? I'm just a master student and <laughs> things like that. I think what I've done differently, so I and, and to go to that back to that point, like so I went from academia to do, like do, doing DoD contracting, and so like I did that because a lot of the alumni at the time were saying like, go do the cool spooky stuff, <laughs> and and that's a lot of fun, right? I should have explored though, I think um, going from academia and research, I I wish I would have explored more um, the um, the national labs and things like that. Um, and then also um, exploring commercial um, because I think that gives a different perspective. And there's a lot of people within commercial that just never leave. Once they're in the commercial space, they don't go to like the small, like that perspective gets lost, I think, in the cybersecurity realm. 
um, where those people just kind of like if you go to like an Apple or a Google, they just like they stick there <laughs> and they don't leave. Right. And that 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 um, that perspective gets lost a lot of times. Um, and so it'd be interesting to know how that perspective is. And I kind of wish I would have explored that. Um, instead, I just went directly into DOD contracting and I had a good time. Like I wouldn't. I like I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing right now if I didn't have that perspective. Um, but I wish I would have explored more perspectives when I was kind of looking when I first started because I think that's another thing within cyber in a little little bit of a ways is like, and I think this goes with other things as well. Like, you sort of have like your your silos, and once you get into like that silo of career, it's hard to go to another one. Um. Like for a little while there after DOD contracting, I wanted to go do space stuff. And that's like, I mean, some of that applies, right? But it's just hard to like get into that. Like once you choose sort of your path, that's your path. <laughs> and you don't necessarily think about that when you like are just like looking. So like, what do I want to do? Um, so I kind of wish I would have explored those paths at least. Maybe I still would have gone down the DOD contracting route, but kind of wish I would have explored those. What about you, Bart? So for mine, I'd say I, I like my path quite a bit, um, but I would question why I didn't start earlier, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? Is like I was always it's it's weird because like I was always pretty good at fixing computers and stuff like that, and I really wish I would have, you know, had somebody that I, I had. Like it's funny. I guess I'll do a shout out to like. The one guy I remember in high school um, who I met in that programming class I had talked about earlier, um, Blake Carubius, and he's a, uh, I think he, yeah, he works for some big companies in um, San Francisco. So, um, but like, I saw like the way he, like, I mean, he, he'd come to school with a MacBook and legit ran like our school systems and everything. And like, I think he was like a, a junior and it's like, I wish I would have been that type of person that like would have jumped on like my passion for computers and jumped more into that systems and security at that time. than I mean, I didn't get into security if you look at it until I think I was like 23, 24. Um, that's when I like started like straight security all before that was just systems. So. What about you, Alex? Um, I would actually say I wouldn't change, uh, pretty much anything. Um, so I, I have a pretty specific way I've been approaching my career. And what I've been trying to do is what I call like dipping my toe into each type of industry. So that's like government sector, federal contracting, large cap companies, small cap company, and then a uh, consulting firm, essentially. And then the last one would be uh, like not-for-profit. So... I've been looking at my career as trying to put myself into positions where I can experience that type of company, that type of industry. And so far, I've been through most of them. Then the, the not-for-profit worked at MITRE. I did the large cap, worked at AWS. Government was in the military. Federal contracting worked with Chris. And now I'm doing the small cap. Uh, which was always one I assumed I would be doing later in my career. And it just things kind of lined up. 
where I was able to make it happen early. And the one that I haven't really dove into yet is consultancy. And frankly, I'm not particularly eager <laughs> to get into <laughs> consultancy, nothing against it, but it's just not something I'm eager to go do yet. Board so member I, later. Honestly, <laughs> what's that? Board member consulting later. <laughs> yes. But Wait, I, my question though is what which one was your favorite so far? Uh definitely definitely small cap uh for me. So working startup because I've always been, and we've had this discussion, Bart, I've always been more of a generalist and I tend to get bored of things exceptionally fast. So having the opportunity to dip my toe into thousands of different things is great for my ADD and keeping me focused on and not getting bored too quickly. Yeah, I, I honestly, yeah, I can, I can say that definitively. I don't think I would have done anything differently. Well, with, as with all new people, we do have... One last wraparound, don't we, dear Chris, for uh, Bart? Yeah. So um, what security resource in the past year have you found really helpful? So this one was hard for me because past year is a, uh, like, my past year has been really weird just because, yeah, I mean, COVID and everything when I was at my other place and all of that. Um, but I will say that the best security resource that I've ever found um, right. Was the Corleon blog, um, which is like really, um, I want to say, I think his name, uh, Frank Atkins. It's funny. I always knew him as Captain Atkins, but this was where I was at. Um, another shout out, uh, he, super smart guy, um, had told me about the website and Corleon is, uh, yeah. Like if you're trying to learn like the intro to like, you know, how does, uh, exploitation and binary exploitation work and stuff like that. Like legitimately one of my favorite sites, I still to this day will go look up stuff. Like when I'm trying to do, they did a whole blog post. I mean, they're, they're a few years old definitely now. Um, but by far my favorite resource. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I don't think I've ever, uh, uh really do that stuff. Yeah. Corleone? Oh yeah. No, Corleone, they got some great write-ups. I mean, they do everything from like SEH overflows and like just, yeah, a bunch of crazy stuff. Huh. Cool. I'll have to check it out. So that's going to conclude the Overture podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like this, please give us a subscribe so you can catch us on our next Overture podcast next month. And with that, Prelude out. <laughs>